This is PwC Trend Talks. My name is Mark Lautier, and today we'll be hosting a special edition of the Trend Talks relating to GDPR. It has now been four years since the coming into force of the General Data Protection Regulation, a regulation which, although not revolutionarily, at least from a principles point of view, clearly has given much more importance to this subject. With us today to discuss all matters data protection, we're lucky and pleased to have Mr. Ian Deguara, the Information and Data Protection Commissioner. Ian, welcome. Um, uh, thank you for inviting me uh, for this uh, podcast. I believe that uh, now we have had GDPR for four years since the regulation came into application and uh, it is important as well for individuals uh, to be more aware about their rights. Even though we have seen a steady growth in awareness, I would say that still there are um, uh, many persons who still do not consider themselves as uh, giving that importance or that much importance to GDPR as much it deserves. Because at the end of the day, here we are talking about uh, a fundamental right, uh, our fundamental right enshrined in the EU Charter. And uh, it is something which uh, should be uh, given priority, in my view. Thanks for that introduction, Ian. And we'll surely come to those points. But I think as a first thing, it's good to hear a bit about Ian and who you are. Um, you've been two years as commissioner. But I understand it's been like 20 years at the Office of Commissioner. I'm really intrigued to know what brought you into this area and even more, what has kept you into it? It's a, it's a very important, very interesting question, actually, because even even I, to myself, I ask that question every day. And the reply I get is that, I mean, I have a passion now for the subject. And this is what kept me in the office for all these years, because I was the f- one of the first employees to join the office way, way back uh, towards the end of 2002. Um, uh, at the beginning, uh, when I joined it was something new for me. So uh, uh, when I when I uh, saw the vacancy at that time after finishing my my uh, university degrees, uh, I thought, "What is this about?" It was something new at the time, and uh, I decided to join. Uh, I was selected, and when I joined the office, there was actually very few people there. Uh, there was a new law which was in the pipeline of being uh, adopted at the time because the Data Protection Act, Chapter 440 at the time, was still not brought into force, so it was still a draft. And it had, there was also a number of regulations which were also were in the pipeline to be adopted. And so uh, my first tasks uh, at the office was um, uh, because we have a very close uh, relationship with the UK. So to go to the ICO's office a website at that time and see what how they are set up uh, to see what uh, guidelines had that they issued at the time and how they have implemented the notification requirements because that was something which was going to be enforced uh, the complaints forms the query forms and so my first task were to actually see all these things and develop um, uh, a website containing the necessary information to start then when the law comes into force, then we go out and say, look here, we exist. There is this office now, a data protection office. This exists. Um, something funny, for instance, is that when I used to tell people where I work, 
the impression was that we were that kind of office which uh, held all the information about the government. So, uh, yes, you work there, you have access to all the information now. Contrary to all that, I mean, we have never had, and even until today, we have no access to any data. So we actually are the regulators in order to um, ensure that controllers, so those companies, organizations, which process personal data, do indeed comply with the requirements of the law and also to provide a remedy to complainants who feel that they might have suffered a potential infringement of their rights. Thanks for that. But the, your role is not just data protection. We read about freedom of information, AI and all that. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of what else you a day in the life of would look like? So um, our our uh, remit is not only limited to data protection. Primarily, it is data protection, but we also enforce um, uh, freedom of information laws um, and. Uh, until a couple of months back, um, we are also the regulatory body for the reuse of public sector information. I have to admit that the bulk of the work comes from um, uh, data protection complaints and issues, but still, um, uh, freedom of information is picking up a lot. Uh, because if I were to compare certain statistical figures, for instance, whereas like four years ago, five years ago, we used to receive 15 complaints on an annual basis, in the past two years, they have really, they went up and shot up to 80, even 100 cases per year. What does that bring from a team perspective? So how has the team grown over the years? Uh, Our team is mainly composed um, from lawyers. We have the legal team. um, Which is a good thing. Of course, (laughs) because you are a lawyer. So I mean, (laughs) you are in favor of lawyers. And we have the technical people. So my my colleagues uh, work on both pieces of legislation. Um, So they investigate uh, both cases of data protection and also investigate cases in relation to freedom of information legislation. Um, The technical people, the technical guys, until today we have only two, but we are in the process of recruiting more people, both lawyers and also technical personnel. Um, The technical people mainly deal with personal data breaches. So their job, their task is to investigate personal data breaches which are notified to our office. And uh, they try to establish all the facts and gather all the information from controllers for the purposes then of issuing a binding decision uh, depending on what uh, is established during the course of the investigation. I guess your role is not just data protection, but it's besides the technical part, there is the team, the recruitment, the oversight and all that. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, So a day at my office is is quite full i would say um because in my role i uh, i am actively involved uh, in the investigation of cases since we are a small office i mean that that brings a number of advantages uh, i believe in a flat design of organization in fact uh, we have a flat design uh, flat flat organization in terms of structure um uh, and everyone is responsible for uh, the area on which he or she is working. Although uh, my colleagues have certain specializations, I mean, there are lawyers, there are technical people. However, um, uh, I believe that they also have to be 
generalists in the sense that um, uh, when we receive inquiries, for instance, or when we are requested to, I don't know, deliver presentations, awareness sessions, or participate in meetings uh, locally or abroad, I mean, they will still have the general oversight or, or general understanding of what's happening. So both in terms of, of both legislations. I think, Ian, that's a very important thing. In the sense, something which I find distinguishes Malta from other jurisdictions is the fact that the authorities are there, okay, first and foremost, to apply the rules, but at the same time are there to also explain it and make sure that businesses understand what it implies. Okay, we're speaking about data protection and the need to, you know, make sure that you have the processes there in place. But it's at the same time explaining it and helping them to achieve those those levels of, of protection that we need. Yeah. Also, from, from my experience as well, um, um, people, data subjects, but also controllers, notwithstanding the fact that we have a lot of guidelines out there. I mean, uh, we have developed some guidelines, but since the coming into application of the GDPR, we have decided that since uh, the EDPB, European Data Protection Board, regularly issues guidelines on the interpretation of certain uh, aspects of the regulation, we do not believe that we should replicate those guidelines. Those guidelines are very exhaustive. During the deliberatory process, we, we are part of, of the board. So we uh, give our feedback we have and we adopt those guidelines collegially with our colleagues. So I don't believe that we should replicate those guidelines. So, But what I was going to say is this, that notwithstanding having all this information, individuals, citizens, but also controllers do still want to have that... Uh, that, that personal touch or personal contact with the authority. And that is why we, receive, we still receive uh, co- uh, inquiries or calls, I mean, asking us certain questions which are fully included in these guidelines, particularly from controllers, I, I, I would like to stress, on CCTVs, uh, on other areas of, of, of the legislation. But still, that element that we are uh, an open, sort of an open door, po- door policy office and we are approachable and we try to reply as fast as possible. So to inquiries, I make it a point that we reply within 48 hours, 72 hours max. So um, so I believe that that is uh, a good thing uh, because uh, we still show that we are present. Uh, but at the same time, um, uh, I believe that this kind of information, which is publicly available, should be explored more, read more, uh, because it it is it is something which we as board as european data protection board spend a lot of time developing and this gives out the interpretation what we are expecting from controllers so because guidelines um, create a level of expectation and therefore we are bound so when we issue guidelines at a dpb level uh, it means a lot because that would mean that whatever is written there we have to implement we cannot diverge from those guidelines, because that will be in breach of certain principles, of legal, legal principles, particularly the one of expectation, legal expectation. So we cannot diverge from those guidelines. And that is why uh, I encourage controllers in particular um, to have a look at the DPB website regularly, because we work a lot within the, 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 the structures of the, of the DPB in terms of expert groups. Um, my office, we try to participate in all the expert groups uh, within the DPB. And the guidelines which are developed um, provide for comprehensive guidelines which should be used in my view. No, I think it's, very, it's a very relevant point. I think first and foremost, your first comment was something which I 
totally agree with very available very approachable and very helpful but i think even these guidelines and all that are helping us because at least there's an element of alignment between yeah. you know what we're saying is aligned with what the commissioner what the office um would be interpreting it and also looking at so that's that's fantastic i think i remember you saying that gdpr wasn't really a revolution it was more of an evolution i agree with that from a concept perspective but clearly there has been great help in elevating data protection and privacy matters what do you bring that to is it the the two years that were there to create that awareness is it the fines element is there the communication between you know uh, the office consultants and businesses what would you give it um, assign it to i would say that the GDPR has raised the bar actually so uh, whereas before i mean uh, because <laughs> my the, the impression was that data protection rules came about with the gdpr which is not the case other member states uh, apart from malta i mean have had data protection rules from the 90s mentioning germany even from the 80s germany the uk the nordic countries so um but uh, I, I speaking from from a national level before I don't believe that there was that much attention to data protection GDPR was uh, a game changer and I can attribute it primarily or mainly to the level of fines I mean because that was uh, one of the main concerns wa- which drove many controllers many businesses uh, crazy at the time because when the GDPR was published uh, when it was when it came into force in, on the 25th of May 2016, um, uh, the first thing which uh, was was given, given a lot of attention was the level of fines because it was establishing a maximum of 20 million or 4% of the annual global turnover it comes to undertakings. So uh, it was given a lot of importance because of that, in my view. When we used to say it was not a revolution, but an evolution, the primary reason is that um, the 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 principles, the legal principles. If you were to compare um, uh, the lawfulness of processing, so Article Six and Article Nine, when it comes to personal data and special categories, and Article Five, the principles of processing, and you were to compare the ones presently in the GDPR with those of Directive Ninety Five, you will see and observe that in essence they are mainly they are largely the same. The same principles are there. Why? Because they are technology neutral um, uh, and they have worked. They have withstood the test of time, I would say, because since 1995, they have withstood the test of time and they were still incorporated in the GDPR. One might argue that um, uh, the GDPR have created additional burdens. Uh, I don't agree to that assessment, to that kind of assessment, because in my view, um, the GDPR has given the individual citizens more control to the personal information. We'll come to that, Ian. Uh, yeah. But the question is, you look at the fines that were issued. There were some important, some hefty fines from all these, you know, contexts. But we don't have the level of fines that you read about abroad, you know. Was that because of the, maybe the level of maturity with regards to Malta, the data subjects' awareness of their rights? Or is it more the type of businesses that are working in Malta? Uh, I think I think you're right on that. Um, uh, usually, we hear in the, in the media news, um, the big fines. Um, uh, imposed by uh, other supervisory authorities, by our counterparts, which mainly are imposed on uh, big tech companies. We have about fines imposed on Facebook, on Facebook, on, on, on Amazon, on, uh, on other big tech multinationals. 
in our case, um, we do not have those big tech multinationals. So uh, we we uh, do not have the luxury, or I don't know whether it's a luxury or otherwise, of imposing those levels of fines. But um, when it comes to imposing, to determining the quantum of a fine, which has to be proportionate, effective, and dissuasive, we have to take into account a number of elements. I mean, it's useless having or or being of the understanding that, okay, we can impose a 20 million fine because the GDPR provides for a maximum of a 20 million fine. When uh, we are dealing with a small enterprise, uh, we were discussing this before, Mark. Uh, we were saying that regardless of the size of the organization, what matters is the data which is being processed because it might be a large uh, organization, but the personal data which is processed is limited to basic personal data. Whereas you can have, on the other hand, um, a, a micro-enterprise, a startup, a, a, a small enterprise, uh, which processes special categories of data on a large scale. So, I mean, we, you ha- we have in our assessment, whereas we take into account the conditions of Article 83, the gravity, the categories, whether there is a negligent intent and all this stuff, the level of cooperation with the supervisory authority, we take into account all these factors. We also have to take into account the size of the organization. Uh, something which is important uh, is that the DPB has published, has issued uh, guidelines on the imposition of administrative fines. Um, uh, so uh, it is currently uh, publicly available. Uh, it is open for public consultation. And then after, a, I believe it's, it's a six-week period, then we will finalize uh, the guidelines at the DPB level on the basis of the feedback which we receive and then they will be adopted. But we are, even in those guidelines, we are establishing certain thresholds. So uh, it's uh, because the tendency is that someone might say, look here, the DPA in Malta is not imposing high fines. But it's not the case because we have to take into account the size of the organization, the turnover, because in certain instances, we request the turnover. Um, and then, then after um, taking into account all those elements, then we decide and determine the level of the fine. Valid point, very valid. And taking you back to the burden point, I think I remember early when, you know, we started webinars, you know, when there was the, the pandemic broke and we started our first sessions, we had one relating to data protection. One of the comments was like, at the moment, it's pivotal and, and what is of priority for us is to keep our business going. Why are you talking about us, to, uh, to us about these these matters? I think if you look back, you see that over the last few years with GDPR, with and then you know the Brexit, with Schrems and all that, there's been quite a number of of data protection principles which have changed, and also the way we do business which have changed. You know, remote working has today become uh, a norm. So this balance is something which we struggle, and I think businesses will struggle. Do you have any comments and advice to businesses on this point? Yes, um, uh, with the pandemic in particular, um, uh, certain business models has to had to change. Um, uh, had to change because uh, either they had to uh, go online on the one hand and on the other hand employees had to start working remotely the balance in that respect was how to ensure business continuity in the light of the pandemic but also to ensure that um, uh, we keep the data secure because um, when you go online when uh, you provide the service electronically the risks increase so and now we know that uh, people with criminal intent hackers in particular have taken advantage of the pandemic 
because uh, knowing of this fact that people had that the businesses had to go online, they tried to find certain vulnerabilities in the systems uh, in order to make certain attacks and you know conduct uh, or, or penetrate the system and ask for a ransom ransomware attack. And unless you have the necessary safeguards in place, um, then what will you do if, for instance, you do not have a backup of your data? And data today has become one of the most valuable items and indeed. valuable assets of a business. So. It is indeed, and that is why it is being attacked. You know, <laughs> whereas before, I don't know, people used to rob banks, you know, for, for cash. Nowadays, people are going online. Um, hackers are going online. Criminal people are going online to steal data because data has become valuable. Yes, data has a value. So um, this is why, and it is important, that security is placed on top of the business agenda, in my view, because particularly cybersecurity, um, uh, in order to ensure that the necessary safeguards, both in terms of technical safeguards and also organizational safeguards, are uh, appropriate to the risks. The risks which the organization is facing, depending on the, the, the nature of the business and the, depending on the categories of data which are being processed. No, totally agree. And we, we, we sometimes talk about, you know, cyber risk, which are becoming more and more of a reality. But the truth is it needs to be a full, fully fledged approach to, to security, especially when you have such a valuable asset. So, you know, we speak about emails, we speak about USBs, we speak about you know, home printers, we speak about a number of minor aspects, which could, however, have big ramifications. So, so thank you for, for that point. We have to go back also to Brexit. You know, we're, we're hearing a lot about, at the moment, there's the adequacy decision, so all fine. But we're hearing a lot about the UK trying to start thinking about more of a business mindset and starting to introduce aspects to help UK businesses. What does that mean from a Malta business perspective? Well, um, going a little back in time, I mean, we had a referendum. Uh, there was a referendum in the UK. The majority of people voted for Brexit. I mean, I'm not going to enter into the merits of the manipulation and of the disinformation campaigns, because this is something which is also important from a data protection point of view. Um, and the use and misuse of data, um, uh, which is certainly pivotal and which have uh, had an impact both on the Brexit referendum and also on the US elections. These are well-known facts. I'm not saying something which is innovative for new. Um, uh, but uh, when it comes to Brexit, um, uh, currently the UK have the have adequacy. So data can flow from um, the EU to uh, the UK on the basis of the adequacy decision. Last week, and it was expected, during the Queen's speech, which wasn't delivered by the, by the Queen, but was delivered by Prince Charles, um, uh, Prince Charles actually uh, announced that the UK will be um, uh, issuing uh, a revised uh, data protection uh, legislation, um, which will be, as you said, Mark, quite correctly, more business friendly. We have to see what does that uh, mean or entail. Uh, less bureaucratic, less complex. Um, uh, we have to see because the, the, the draft text will be available most probably during the summer or before the summer. What impact might that have is uh, with regard to the adequacy decision, because it is important to mention that for the first time ever, the European Commission in the adequacy decision has inserted a sunset clause. Uh, so there, uh, this was the first time to introduce such a clause. 
sunset clause is that the adequacy decision is valid for four years. And then it will be reviewed. And then depending on the outcome of the evaluation, the commission will decide um, whether to renew the adequacy or otherwise. But still, even within the adequacy decision as well, there is what we call like a um, an emergency break. So if the commission, even during these four years, will become aware um, uh, either through sources or through its own assessment that the UK has deviated from what has been agreed um, uh, during the, the negotiations and therefore that because before the UK was a full member state and so their uh, data protection law was almost mirroring the GDPR. So there, wasn't, there weren't any problems in that regard. But the Commission said um, in its adequacy decision that if the UK deviates from those set of rules, um, it might trigger that emergency break. Uh, emergency break meaning that it may suspend the adequacy decision. And that will, yes, have an impact um, uh, on the data flows to the UK. And we know that we, Malta, uh, have many companies which uh, transfer data to the UK. So without an adequacy decision, uh, it will be more burdensome because they will need to find an additional uh, transfer mechanism under Article 46 uh, on the basis of which to, to, to legitimize the transfer of personal data. So we have to wait and see uh, the draft text um, of the new proposed legislation in the UK and see what will what will come out of that text. Because, But I am pretty sure that if something will raise the eyebrows of the bureaucrats in the European Commission, s- something will happen. So it won't go unnoticed for sure. Thanks for that. From a sort of to conclude, because I think we've been... We've been at this for far too long, and you know um, the initial concerns were: will we find time to to fill fill up this this session? But I think we we've we've discussed quite a few interesting things. I think looking forward, what do you sense is there in the future for data protection? What are your comments? You know, we know there are the SCCs, and we've been discussing something relating to third party beneficiary rights. What are your sort of concluding comments relating to? what the future holds. There is an important conference in uh, June, in the middle of June, uh, which is organized by the European Data Protection Supervisor. And the, check, uh, the name of the, the title of the conference uh, is The Future of Data Protection. There's also the PwC Tax Conference in June, and so, so yes, uh, quite a number of interesting conferences. Of yeah. So it is uh, interesting to see what will come out of that conference. But um, uh, the, main, the main issues which uh, are known to many, at least in the data protection sphere, in my view are two. Whether the GDPR should be amended, and uh, we know from the 2020 evaluation report from the Commission that at least two years ago, the Commission decided or uh, based its, 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 its decision on the evaluation that at that point in time, the GDPR doesn't require to be reopened for discussion and to be amended. The next evaluation will be in two years' time. So we will have to see in that regard what will happen. But in the meantime, um, uh, there are certain um, uh, voices, at least uh, at European level, which are um, uh, saying that the rules are, although they are technology neutral and uh, they have also the test of time and uh, all these things, that they might need to be revised. The second point is on 
where data protection will go in the future, particularly, but this is something which affects us as regulators and uh, which we are criticized about, particularly by certain NGOs that uh, I mentioned. And the YB, I mean, I mentioned because, I mean, they, they publicly state all these statements. That they say that the one-stop shop mechanism is not working. So uh, that is the claim because there are, there are a number of uh, strategic cases which have not yet been decided and which are very important. Uh, so after four years, they have not been decided by the lead supervisory authority. And so not only by them, but even at uh, uh, within other quarters, we uh, most probably during this conference, there will be discussion whether this one-stop shop mechanism should change rather than the system where there is the lead supervisory authority uh, and there are the concerned supervisory authorities. So the lead will be where the controller has its main establishment. And the concern will be like, for instance, whether where the complaint has been filed. So this is how we work uh, for con co consistency cases, for strategic cases. So the, the argument is whether there should be a centralized body to take care of these um, strategic cases. And therefore, they, uh, there will be a speed up in the resolution of cases, whether there will be more effectiveness in terms of uh, resolution and, and, and corrective action. So this is something which is uh, on uh, our plate at this, at this moment in time to see um, what will happen. If you were to ask me personally, I would say, not because uh, I don't want I I I, I uh, do not want to create any ripples, but I believe that the system works. I believe that the system works. What needs to be done is for us as authorities to cooperate more effectively. That is, and that is the scope why we had the Vienna meet the Vienna meeting in April uh, this year in order to discuss between us regulators, and we have issued a statement in this regard, how we can be more effective in terms of uh, ensuring uh, more effective cooperation. Because by being more efficient in our cooperation, these kind of cross-border cases might be resolved in a quicker period of time and in a more effective way. So these are uh, things on the horizon, not in, in, in a very distant horizon, but these are the things, the two things which in my view um, uh, are might change the, the European data protection law in uh, the near future. What's clear, Ian, is that there's a lot of material to have more of these PwC trend talk special um, editions, particularly covering GDPR. Once again, I thank you, Ian, for your time, and I'm sure our listeners and myself have really enjoyed this discussion. Thank, thank you. Very you. Much.